You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. We had Stephen Cleveland said, how come the left continues to have their head in the sand concerning both the border realities and the Biden family influence scandal. I know it's the Democrat Party line, but to half the country, the facts are overwhelming. I can only shake my head in disbelief. I'm especially disappointed with our two Democratic senators. When are elected officials going to put the good of the country over holding the party line? And look, here's the question here. And I it's not just Republicans that think that this is a problem with Biden. Democrats are more and more every day talking about, okay, this is getting to be the drip, 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 drip of Watergate. Okay, there is nothing that Donald Trump did, even though he was impeached twice, that is on the level and of the organizational level that the Biden family has been involved in. And uh, when they had the press conference a couple of months ago where they laid out the bank records, I mean, that was really the most, um, you know, really uh, damning information that was out there related to uh, what was happening with this money. And the fact was that one of the Biden grandchildren was getting a million dollar payment out of some of these LLCs. That is really just how brazen it got. It's one thing for Joe Biden and Jim Biden and Hunter Biden to be involved in some kind of business together with a few other business partners. But when you start doling money out to Jill and one of the grandchildren and you got nine other members of the family, you start to really get brazen about it, that you think you're not going to get caught and there's no way it's going to be done. Now, I think it's important that we understand where this came from and what's important and what's not. You go all the way back to when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State and Benghazi, uh, the situation in Benghazi. You know, to me, that was an impeachable offense on her part. It was treasonous in my mind. And it was and it showed her incompetence. And the fact that she even ran for president after that uh, and even showed her face again. This is the brazenness. And look, I know you can give me examples on the Republican side, but I'm trying to lay out this history here. The brazenness of a person who who was responsible for the kind of failure that happened in Benghazi, and she is responsible. Okay, what difference does it make at this point? At this point, what difference does it make? I think is what she said. Then she she destroyed all these emails, but even with all of that, the Trump Justice Department was basically didn't go after her, okay? Because we don't don't go after our political opponent, oppon- opponents. And that was at least the way we used to be. We didn't go after our political opponents. We beat them at the ballot box. And that's what happened to her. And she has been this little person that's been trying to get traction again ever since. She hasn't accepted that she lost. She looks ridiculous and nobody takes her seriously. She can pop up every now and then in social media or at an event, but nobody wants to be seen standing next to her, okay? She ruined her career, 
And we did it the right way. We defeated her the right way. Okay? And really, it started with Obama defeating her. And really, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Because Obama was much better than Hillary Clinton. You can dislike Barack Obama. Okay? And I don't like his policies. And I don't think he was a good president. I think he was a good man. Okay? He was a person that tried to do the right thing. And here's the thing, and I know many of you that are anti-Obama folks won't acknowledge this, but I'm going to be fair in how I present this. He was very progressive. And yes, he wanted to take this country in a very progressive direction. But he knew he couldn't do it. So he governed in a more centrist way. Okay, and put all his eggs in the basket of getting ACA, which was the most progressive thing he got done. Okay, he didn't use his political power to codify Roe v. Wade, which would have been a very progressive thing. He didn't use his political power for a number of things. He used his political power for an idea that the Democrats had been working on for 100 years. And he got it codified into law. And now we're, what, 14 years down the road? It's never going anywhere. Okay, so that was... Certainly his most progressive thing that he did. But he put people around him. And very interestingly, the people that he put around him that were less progressive are not in the Biden administration. I know everybody thinks that Susan Rice is controlling Biden and all these Obama people are controlling Biden. Well, they might be Obama people, but they were the D-list Obama people. They were not the A-list Obama people. Those people are out making money. And live in the good life. Okay? Then we had uh, President Trump. Who, look, President Trump has had a lot of shady dealings throughout his life. It is the nature of being a real estate mogul. Real People who deal in real estate are always leveraging their power. They're always leveraging their deals. They're always using contacts and moving things around. It's like a chess game. And I'm not... No criticism to anybody that I know that's in the real estate business. But when you are in the real estate business at the level that Donald Trump is in the real estate business, you have a lot of, let's just, I don't want to call them shady dealings, but some interesting dealings in order to get you where you are at that level. The games that you have to play, the things you have to do, and just the fact that he has lawsuits brought against him throughout his career doesn't mean he was a a crooked guy. All kinds of people have lawsuits. And also, the fact you settle lawsuits does not mean you're guilty. Okay? Because a lot of people make a business decision around these lawsuits saying, okay, it's going to cost me $50 million to fight this lawsuit and I still might lose and I'll have to pay everybody's legal fees. I'll just pay this person $10 million, get them off my back, and then I, then I can move on my merry way. It's a business decision, folks. It's a business decision. We don't want to hear this because we want to think that everybody is sunshine and unicorns. Okay? But then when you get up to this kind of dog-eat-dog world, they're really not. Okay? Then you go on to President Biden, who, to me, is just the worst example. You know, why? I really would like to, to if I ever got a chance to meet Barack Obama... I would say of all the people you could have chosen to be your vice president, why Joe Biden? You really hadn't known him for about 18 months. Okay, that's all you really knew him for because you were only in the Senate for about 18 months. 
he wasn't a guy that kind of no you know exemplar exemplified you know progressive thinking he'd had his foot in his mouth through the whole time he had been accused of plagiarism he had to drop out of two i mean there's a whole laundry list of failures he had on the democratic side and obama really set him up to be able to run for president by making him the vice president and so it was it's it's a very interesting choice that he felt like he needed this white guy that had been in office since 1975 to combat him when he really could have or to compliment him, I guess is a better word to say. I would love to ask him that question. Why Joe Biden? You know, because I think Joe Biden had this aura of being this guy that got along with everybody. But go back and look at it. Did he really? Not really. And we're seeing it now. So we had Trump in between, and then Biden ran, and Biden was going to lose again. And for whatever reason, the powers that be, I don't know if it was the 2,000 superdelegates or some other smoke-filled room group of people, got together and said, we can't have an Amy Klobuchar. I remember I was sitting with my uncle at the Democratic debate in February, B.C., before COVID. And he said, you know, if you had to vote for a Democrat, who would you vote for? Because my uncle was very liberal. And I said, well, you know, anybody I would vote for would never make it because they'd be too moderate. Okay, but uh, I would vote for Amy Klobuchar, which she is a progressive. But she's got the experience and she's very sharp and smart. And she would have been a great candidate uh, in 2020. I would have gone for Amy Klobuchar if I had to pick a Democrat, if I had to pick a Democrat. Um. I was, look, I liked John Kasich. I know he turned out to be a big baby when he wouldn't give up at the end. But you look at his record. I try not to find people by the worst day of their life, okay? The worst day of John Kasich's life was when he was acting like a baby and he wouldn't give up. Remember that debate where it was him and Trump, and I think that was all, and he just wouldn't give up, and finally he did? I don't like to... I hope people don't judge me by the worst day I've ever had. And I don't like to judge people by the worst day I ever had. People forget, or they ever had, people forget that John Kasich was the budget committee chairman and in leadership when we balanced the budget for four years from 96 to 2000 and then reduced the debt during that period of time. He was part of that team that did that. Then he went out into the world and made money, and then he ran for Ohio governor and was a two-term Ohio governor and did a great job at that. And I'll tell you a personal story about John Kasich, you know, is that he, when my sister was dying, he was running for governor the first time, and he got wind through some interviews that we'd done that I was dealing with this, and he used to call me just randomly when he was on the campaign trail and pray with me about my sister. He didn't have to do that. I was nobody. I wasn't helping him in Ohio. I was just somebody he had crossed path, paths with over the years, and he had a, uh, a positive impression of me. But he was a nice man. So I'm not going to judge John Kasich by the worst day of his life. And since then, he's really... He's really become a whiner, and I think, you know, it's all of that. And I'm not saying it negates all the good things he did, but, you know, it is one of those things. He's He was not a guy that ended up being the best choice. 
I don't know that Donald Trump was the best choice in 2016, but he was the nominee. I supported him. And I think he ultimately did what he promised to do. You know, even though he was like a bull in a china shop on his way to doing it, he did what he promised to do. And I think that's what people like. But getting back to the point I made before the the uh, earlier in the program, I realize all of you folks that support Donald Trump, you're going to support him no matter what. Okay, you the people that have peeled off from Donald Trump have already peeled off from him. You're going to support him no matter what. And I say this with total 1000 percent respect. Okay, you are. You are not the person he needs to be talking to anymore. You're not the people he needs to be talking to anymore. He needs to try to get people like me back that have peeled off and are looking at other Republican candidates. I know he says he doesn't care. He doesn't care about people like me. And he probably, if he met me, he'd call me all kinds of names. Okay, and I would consider that a good day. All right. But he was asked the question by Brett Baer. What are you going to do to get suburban women back? And I'm not a suburban woman. I'm an ex-urban woman, technically, because we this is in a suburb of Atlanta. But he said, yeah, I know I need to be less confrontational. And I'm paraphrasing, but I just can't do it. You know, so he acknowledges, he knows that he could do more to bring some of these people back. Now, will he do it once he gets the nomination, which it looks like he's on the track to do it? I hope so. I hope that he will, he will, with a wink and a nod, say to his supporters, you know what, I got you. I know you're going to be with me, but I got to get this other 20% back, okay? Because if I don't get this 20% back and if I don't have a resounding victory, we're just going to look at four more years of people giving me a hard time. And that's not what we want. Now, I realize that's a very reasonable way to approach this, and it's probably not going to happen that way. But I really just want to give you some food for thought that there's more than one way to think about all of this. And as a conservative, we know our ideas are better and we ought to do everything we can to be sure our ideas are the ones that get implemented. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Those same elected officials and or the people who elected them have also been the targets of criminal activity and witness, uh, you know, almost unparalleled amounts of violence, gun violence in the community. So you have to weigh those two experiences to un- to help understand, I believe, the position that's being taken by some of the elected officials in the city of Atlanta. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and that is DeKalb CEO Michael Thurman in his official job. But his unofficial job, and the one I love him the most for, is historian. And uh, he is here with me right now because he is writing a book called James Oglethorpe, Father of Georgia. It's coming out later this year. Uh, He's also the author of one of my favorite go-to books that I have read over and over. I have given to people. I have tried to get it in curriculum. I have talked about it, and it's called Freedom, which is the history of African Americans in Georgia before the Civil War. So he is a historian and a thoughtful person. Michael Thurman, welcome back to the program. Good morning, Martha. Thank you for having me. Sure thing. So tell us about James Oglethorpe, father of Georgia. First of all, why did you decide to write about this subject? And secondly, why is this subject so interesting? Well, I've always been a great admirer 
of uh, James Oglethorpe from school. But in 1996, I took a trip with Governor Zell Miller and about 57 other Georgians, politicians, historians, business leaders to England, to Cranham, England, to celebrate the 300th anniversary, the tricentennial of Oglethorpe's birth. While there, we visited St. Church, where he's buried in the floor, the parish church of all saints in Cranham Village. And there's a marble uh, plaque. And among the many platitudes is one sentence, eight-word sentence. He was a friend of the oppressed Negro. This was written in 1785. And so that captured my imagination. And I set out on what became a 27-year journey to determine as to whether or not that was true. Was he, in fact, a friend of the oppressed Negro? So what did you find out? What I found out was that James Oglethorpe began as a uh, officer in a slave trading firm, the Royal African Company, uh, but he came into possession of a letter written by an enslaved young man in Maryland. The letter was written in Arabic. Uh, Oglethorpe had the letter translated at Oxford, and he was so affected by the sincerity and the passion and the just the theology of this young man he arranged for his passage back to England and ultimately back to Africa. And that changed his attitude about slavery in particular. And more importantly, it helped him to see the humanity of black people as well as white. And it's, Michael, I wanted to talk to you about this because it's really about relationships. Um, A few years, about two years ago, I was driving home and a lot of times I listen to BBC World Service at night when I'm driving home because they have some great programming. And they, uh, it was a program about a person that was only known by a number. Um, And this person was a slave that went... Uh, They thought he went down in a ship. It was after the British uh, um, outlawed slavery. They spent as much money trying to stop slave ships as they had in the slave trade. And in this particular case, this particular ship was coming off the coast of Africa and um, and it got it sunk. And some of the people were saved and some of them were not. And there was this one person who the only entry of this person was a number. It was a five-digit number. And the person was uh, had was going to be a slave. He was deaf and mute, and but was also a Christian. And he was able, in this, this story, they were able to put together the history of this person. He got back to land. He started a church that was one of the only churches that had um, sign language was being used. Mm. So he was fairly educated. He was a black man. And even today, that church is, you know, it's had many iterations. Here we are 250 years later, 60 years later, that church is still standing. And it is a church that caters to people with special needs, whether they they can hear or see. And it Mm. was started by a man that was bound for slavery, okay, that is only known by the name of a number that was assigned to him. Even today, he's only been known by that number. And it was such a gripping story to me. And I was thinking, how many more of those stories are out there? And then when I read the the blurb from your book and the reference to that letter, I'm so glad you brought it up. It's that same kind of story, isn't it? That it was someone that didn't really have a name, he did have a name, of course, but that 
normally would just blend in, right? And once his story was told, it changed a person's mind. Absolutely. And that is really the subtext of Oglethorpe's life is that you can begin in one place as a slave trader, but he ended up as one of the first abolitionists. Oglethorpe was one of the first white men in North America to speak out against the evils of the international slave trade. Think about it. If I asked someone 300 years ago, go find me the state where abolition or the first abolitionists live or the people who oppose slavery, they would not look in Georgia. So this book is about how people must evolve. And if you can change yourself, ultimately, Overthorpe helped change the course of world history. And that's the power of, of uh, human agency. And, you know, there's been this whole controversy recently about what, if any, skills uh, black people gained from being enslaved. And one of the things, one is resistance uh, and to maintain your humanity. The reality is that even though Diallo was enslaved in America, in, in what British America, in Maryland, he continued to believe in his faith, he believed in his family, and he believed that ultimately he would be delivered. The power of the written word. That's the story I want to share with young people. If you can read and write, he literally wrote his way to freedom. You know, it is interesting, and I'm glad you brought up the the kind of controversy in Florida, even though you didn't mention it directly. You kind of skirted around it. (laughs) But there, there is, I looked at that whole curriculum, Mike, and there's a lot more to the curriculum than, than the one piece that's been picked out as is with most things, right? I mean, you know, there's more to it than the headline. Um, and and one of the things that I learned from looking at that and then doing a little digging, because that's what I do, is that we didn't start out in America with slavery. We started out with surf, serfdom, which is kind of what the system was that came over from England at that time, where people had to work their way into freedom. You know, and it wasn't just black people. It was white people. It was, you know, that kind of thing. And then there was this transition that was made to slavery. And I'm trying to understand more about that, quite frankly, because I think we need to learn those lessons in order to understand where history came from because there's too many people spouting what they think history is and they're not doing the work to really look into it your book freedom that talks about a history that most people still don't know about black folks in georgia before the civil war and if we're not willing to learn if we're not willing to question if we're not allowed to question there's a problem Oh, absolutely. And you're right on point. In all fairness and honesty, when I read the inscription on the on the memorial plaque, I didn't believe it. I thought it was a lie. Because I never heard Overthorpe being described as being a friend of black people. I thought it was a complete fallacy, a lie. And it was the questioning of it that set me on the journey. Now, as it relates to the indentured servant, uh, when the British began to colonize America uh, and the Spanish and the French, uh, particularly the British, uh, first there was an attempt to enslave the Native Indians. Uh, that didn't work out well. Number one, they were they were suffered from old world diseases, and they could easily escape in the very familiar terrain. Secondly, that was this focus on indentured servants, poor whites, or whites trying to escape uh, criminal lifestyles and other 
uh, people on the margins of society were bought in as indentured servants, which you would serve often an indenture tour was four to seven years. Uh, the employer didn't like that, particularly in the South, because the white indentured servant just could not work into, in the semi-tropical climate. Then came the enslavement of Africans uh, because, number one, it was cheap labor, and you could enslave a person not just for his or her life, but if there were offspring, you could also enslave their children. So it became, for these slave owners, a better investment. And so that is what spurred uh, the international slave trade that was pioneered uh, by Great Britain. But the first enslavers were Portugal and Spain. Well, and then the English were the first to outlaw slavery. Um, and I want to know, what is the truth? And maybe you haven't done any research on this. And if you haven't, that's fine. What was the role of the tribes in Africa and how did they work with the people that bought the slaves and took them to America? I mean, because there was some role there, and people are reluctant to talk about that. And I'm not sure what it is. Well, actually, I covered that. So when you look at the international slave trade, uh, what it was is that British slavers, and it was every part of the British uh, economy was built on the international slave trade. Um, it was a very profitable and brutal international enterprise. So they would take manufactured goods uh, such as guns and ammunition, uh, clothing to Africa, and they would trade those manufactured products uh, with for uh, prisoners of war uh, from other African chieftains. Uh, if there were not enough prisoners of war uh, to be traded for goods, what the European enslavers would do is that they would help uh, propagate and instigate wars between the various tribes so that you can increase the number of people to be slaves. And once they were captured and then the middle passage, some historians say some 12 million Africans uh, died on the middle passage. I have this story that the uh, uh, slave uh, crews would say that the sharks would change their migration pattern because as the Africans died on board, they were thrown into the ocean. And they would then be transported to the Caribbean and ultimately to um, the American colonies and ultimately the American state. So that was the triangular trade from England to Africa to the New World. And these captured Africans would be sold like cattle and animals at various ports uh, in Boston and primarily, though, in Charleston, South Carolina. That was the main port of entry for the slave trade and ultimately here in Georgia and Savannah. So was the slave trade in America different? Because there's stories of slave trade in the Bible going back, you know, to old times. I mean, there's stories of slave, there's enslaved peoples today. I mean, you've got, look at the Uyghurs in, in China. I mean, unfortunately, human beings don't seem to learn the lesson, uh, you know, that we need to learn. How did American slave trade compare to any of that, or are they, or can you compare them? Well, it's impossible to compare, but historians much smarter than I am, it's unprecedented uh, in terms of the, the life that was lost in the transportation uh, and the trafficking of millions, some projected many, 30 million human beings from Africa. And uh, it was unparalleled in the history of mankind. Um, one, what made slavery different 
uh, in America is that it was race-based and it was generational. Uh, it was perpetual. And so consequently, a person could not only own, uh, say, a mother, but you would own all of her offspring. And that would be in perpetuity. So, and so you own literally generations of human beings. And we're talking uh, to Michael Thurman, who is the author of the new book, uh, James Oglethorpe, Father of Georgia, that will be coming out later this year. What is the release date on that, Michael? Uh, it's later this year and, you know, early next year. Okay. But this book is about redemption. It's about how this man, number one, befriended enslaved and formerly enslaved people. But more importantly, he was able to change from a slave trader who became one of the first abolitionists on the face of the planet, one of the first white abolitionists. And that's a story in 2023 that I think should be important for all of us to know how to change ourselves and ultimately be able to change our world and change the course of world history. So what should we do going forward? Okay, so there was a poll recently that said if if they could, 150 million people want to come to the United States. Okay, um, we have millions of people coming every year. Uh, and I've seen some estimates that something like 75% of the people that live in America today weren't here in 1900. Okay, so... Um, my family came here, my father's side of the family came here in 1903. My mother's side of the family came to the Dutch Forks of South Carolina in the mid-1600s. So uh, it depends on the side of the family, you know, you look at, you look at. Okay. Um, and thankfully, I'm so thankful I have those records, okay, which is really something that was denied many slaves that came here. They don't know their history. But what should be, how do we rectify when when America is a very different country than it was during slave times. And actually, most of the people that live here today, their families were not here during slave time, either from any race, black, white, brown, they weren't here. What is the way to move forward on this issue? Well, first of all, the truth sets you free. We shouldn't be afraid of the truth. Uh, we come from very different places. That's what America's all about. You mentioned your uh, your ancestors. My great-grandfather was enslaved on a plantation in Oconee County, Georgia in 1865 uh, by the descendants of a man named Harris Thurmond. And so that's just who we are. But if we can have the courage and to research honestly the history, to depoliticize our history, one of the problems, and I'm going to say this, is that the politicians have tried to turn it into a political platform. The professional historians need to speak up and focus more on the facts as they exist. And then to be able to honestly have conversations like you and I have had this morning, like we've had for many years, and learn from whatever mistakes that were made. Learn from our weaknesses. And finally, to recognize that we shouldn't paint history with a broad brush. One of the important things with Overthorpe and John Wesley, all white folk didn't support slavery. There was a small group of white people who, from inception, not only said it was against the gospel, but it was a crime against humanity and worked to break the chains of slavery, worked with millions and thousands and thousands of black people who over time were able to eliminate uh, slavery from the face of the Western Hemisphere. So that's what needs to bring us together. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. 
It is so great for me to be able to welcome Kimberly Strassel. I have read her work for years and years, longer than I'd like to admit. But when I saw this book, I knew I had to talk to her. The book is called The Biden Malaise. And for the last two years, I've been saying as a woman of a certain age, that this reminds me of the 70s. The 70s was a lot of fun for me. I was in high school and college. But for the real world that was out there, you had violence in the cities. You had people that were moving from the cities to the suburbs. You had high inflation, high interest rates. Uh, My first house, the interest rate was 13%. You had all of these issues going on. And you had a weak one-term president. We don't know if Joe Biden's going to be a one-term president, but it sure looks like it's stacking up that way. Kimberly Strassel, welcome to the program. Martha, it is so great to be here. Thank you for having me. And, you know, I have an anecdote in the book where uh, I actually remember sitting in a gas line with my mother in the 1970s under Jimmy Carter's. And that's when I first learned about bad presidents, according to my mom. You know, it's funny. I've done some work at the Carter Center on something they call the Democracy Resilience Project. And one of the things that they'll say uh, kind of in the background at meetings is they're really think that there's a different look at Jimmy Carter's president now, presidency now, because President Biden is doing even worse of a job. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and that is one of the big themes of the book, which is that outwardly, as you say, there are all these comparisons, whether it's inflation, whether it is high gas prices, whether it's some foreign policy debacles. But as, as the book makes the case, it's kind of an unfair comparison to Jimmy Carter because Carter inherited a lot of his problems, right? The world was already in what we were calling the great, re, great inflation. Um, you had very high gas prices because of oil shocks. Um, you had high unemployment, as you mentioned. Um, Joe Biden inherited what should have been a pretty great situation. Inflation was low. Gas prices were low. The economy was just to roar back, uh, just about to roar back after COVID and lockdowns from some pretty strong fundamentals that we'd had going into it. All he really had to do is sit back. Um, But it was his actions, which I argue were taken not necessarily to fix any problems, but to change the structure of the country um, that caused a lot of the problems that we're having now. So I think there's a really qualitative difference between the two presidencies. Does Joe Biden think he's the continuation of Barack Obama's, you know, transformational change of America that somehow he's finishing the job? I think he's even one step beyond that. I think what Obama did was really whet the appetite of what was has become the ascendant wing of the Democratic Party, the progressive movement. And they saw in Joe Biden a guy, too, who, um, if you looked at his primary, who seemed very willing, not just in that primary, but as an entire tenure uh, in the Senate, to be where the center of gravity of the party is. So they saw him a person who'd be willing to really implement their full agenda. And we've seen that he hasn't really offered any pushback on that. He has been very willing. So I think he's even gone beyond Barack Obama. You know, I went to Ireland on a trip in April, and ironically, there is a gas station on one of the highways that is dedicated to Barack and Michelle Obama. There is this big statue out in front because he visited there while he was president. And it's kind of funny. I don't think Barack Obama would want a statue of himself in front of a gas station. But that's what, (laughs) you know, he has. But what's interesting about it is 
I have a little more appreciation, even as a conservative of President Obama, because I believe he was a progressive. I mean, I think that he was a progressive in the form of AOC and any of these kind of progressives you can name. But I think he understood that the country wasn't there and he governed in a more center left way versus center right, with the exception of a of uh, the ACA, which was definitely progressive. Um, and I'm a conservative and I didn't like any of his policies, but he looks a little better to me after going through three years of Joe Biden. Well, yeah, actually. And who would have thought, right? Yeah, really. Um, but <laughs> but I still remember one of the things that I talk about in the book is he also was very willing to look at the mood of the country and, and adjust a little bit accordingly. And so after his uh, first midterm, which obviously was a wipeout. It was a shellacking, party, as he said. It was horrible. Um, now, he'd already got his main priorities in, but he did decide to choose to pivot a little bit. It wasn't a full embrace, but to to at least mouth a lot of platitudes about the need to deal with spending uh, and deficit control. That's how we ended up with some of those deals in the end with Paul, uh, with uh, Boehner and, and some of the sequestration that we got and uh, actual reduction in spending, at least for a small period of time. Um, there's been no willingness from Joe Biden to do anything similarly. All you have to do is look at his polls. It's so clear that the majority of the country is not happy with what he and his administration has done. But rather than uh, adjust, uh, they've embraced it and they're trying to sell it. You know, Bidenomics, um, no one's buying it, but it's, it's, I think, a very big difference between the two. You know, I'm not as worried about the domestic policy because I think we can work our way out of it. Um, you know, it's what we do. We, you know, it goes to the left and then we have to pull it back to the right. But hopefully this next time Republicans will actually cut spending, which they never do. Uh, and I'm hoping that they will. My biggest concern with Joe Biden has always been, and you talk about this in the book, is the foreign policy. You know, we had the horrible Afghanistan exit. Um, we've got, even though I'm not a conspiracy theory guy, it's ironic to me. There's a lot of smoke around Biden and his family and the problems we're having are with China and Ukraine. You know, it's, it's, there are big problems out there in the world and, and they're really of the making of the weakness of Joe Biden. And it scares me a little bit. Yeah, you know, I would argue it's the the making of the weakness of the world in that we have this new global disorder, and I do put that at Joe Biden's feet. Um, I think these are also very big differences, both between Carter and Obama and Biden. You know, Carter, similarly, he, he again, he, he inherited a really terrible situation globally in that we were in the middle of a very aggressive Cold War with some very hostile foreign actors. He, he made a lot of mistakes, he, a little bit of bad luck as well, the Iranian hostage crisis. There were a lot of things mm -hmm. that befell him, uh, you know, but think again as Joe Biden as a, a doubling down of Barack Obama. Barack Obama's whole philosophy, lead from behind. Uh, this has been Joe Biden times 10, um, coupled with the fact that this is a guy who our former defense secretary said has never made a, a good foreign policy decision in his life. Um, and, you know, if you look, for instance, at his with withdrawal from Afghanistan, you can trace a straight line from that disaster to Putin beginning to amass his troops around Ukraine and ultimately invading. He understood that this was a uh, an American leader who was not going 
to do anything about his aggression. Um, and I think we've seen that in terms of China as well. We have very hostile actors who have taken Joe Biden's weakness as a signal that they can exert their own muscle and exert more dominance over the globe. So what is next? I mean, what should we learn from this book? And and how can we, you know, maximize the next, what is it, 18 months until we can hopefully get him out of office? Yeah, and that is the, the, the fun part of the Biden malaise, the book, is I'm reminding everybody, both on the right and on the left, to remember what came after Carter. And, of course, that was an American public that was so disillusioned uh, with the policies and, and the liberal governance of Jimmy Carter that Ronald Reagan was able not only to win an election and then a re-election, but to fundamentally transform electoral politics in the country for a generation. And I think, and I make the case that we're at a similar moment um, and that it's very important that conservatives who are going into the primary realize that we have have a very unique opportunity here. Um, if we can choose someone that we're never going to get another Reagan, but if you get someone who has a message, but also has that fundamental thing that Reagan had, which was optimism, uh, that has a optimistic vision for the future, that attempts to bring the country together on the values that we do share. Okay, there's a lot that divide us, but there's a lot that holds us together. Um, then you have an opportunity not just to win an election, but to to transform uh, politics in Washington, maybe for a longer period of time. Yeah, I mean, I think that optimism thing, you're on to something. I was I was blessed to work for a company called Riches, which is now Macy's in the 80s, where we had this dream team of a leadership of a CEO and a president. And it was, you know, we'd have the quarterly meetings. This was before, before computers. And and you'd walk out of that meeting and you were so motivated that you you knew it could be done and you were the person to do it. And Reagan was like that, too. Reagan communicated well. And, it, and a good leader doesn't do everything himself or herself. A good leader makes you feel like you can do it. A good leader makes you feel like you can go out and take that risk and start a, start a business. That's what we're missing. And there is some positivity on the Republican side. Uh, but, you know, there's this big thing called Donald Trump, which he's not positive, And he looks like he may get this nomination. Yeah, he's a very divisive figure. Look, and by the way, I think we can all appreciate the policies that yes. uh, Donald Trump had in office, which did great good for the country. Um, there's two ways of looking at this, though. There, that's the policy side, okay? But I think uh, conservative voters have to be looking at both the policy side and the politics side. And the politics side is simply, it's simply true that he is a very divisive character. Um, and he, he, what he loves about the president and running for the president is not, he doesn't geek out on policy like you and me. And <laughs> he, he, he cares about the cut and thrust, right? He likes to jab. He likes to punch. Now, a lot of people like him for that. Um, I would just make the case that I think it's very possible that you can have a Republican leader that both knows how to throw a punch. Look, Ronald Reagan was no wilting flower. Ask all those air traffic controllers, right? Mm -hmm. But you can throw a punch. You can be very tough. 
Uh, you can take on the big fights, and you can do it, though, in a way that doesn't repel half the country because you're doing it, as you mentioned, for a purpose where you are saying, hey, uh, you've got some good catchphrases like, you know, the, the worst thing in the world is, is government knocking on your door. We're going to get it out of the way. We're going to let you succeed. Um, uh, you can do that by uniting people around uh, visions like that um, instead of saying, hey, if you're not 100 percent where we are on every issue we are, you don't get to come into the tent. Um, that is that is a recipe for 50-50 elections of the type we've continued to have for too long. Well, we did see a moment with Brett Baer, though, when the former president was talking to Brett Baer and he asked him about suburban women and the president I don't think he meant to be funny, but he showed a little sense of humor because the former president said, uh, you know, I know I need to be a little less controversial, but I just can't do it. And I was like, yeah. I kind of laughed at myself because, well, that's a truthful moment. OK, I can handle that. <laughs> but, that was truth, pure truth. But I say to people all the time, the, the 35 percent, I think it's 50 percent of the Republican electorate is supporting President Trump. It's about 35 percent of the general electorate. But the people that he's got to win over are the people like me who voted for him twice, gave him money in 2020 and really wants to see a change. And that gets me in trouble with some of my listeners. But I'm always going to analyze things fairly. I don't think I'm I'm a unicorn. I think there's a lot of people like me out there that are saying, man, I just want something different this time. Well, yeah. And you look, by the way, I think added to that. And I have met many people like that, by the way. I, I live in an area where there's a lot of. People just like you, just as you described, that voted for Trump twice uh, have been very big supporters because they were willing in the past to look past some of the controversy and just realize what good he had done for the country in terms of policies, in terms of the Supreme Court. Um, but they're a little bit tired of the drama. They're wondering if there's someone else who also has that fight, that punch, um, but that can maybe not be the centerpiece of, of so much controversy. Uh, I think there's a couple of other things they're thinking about, too, one of which is, look, again, pragmatically. Uh, this is an older guy. He's obviously in a lot better shape than Joe Biden, without a question. Um, but he's also, given his first term, he can only be in office for four years, right? And so, again, if you're looking to the future, uh, there's also, if you were to choose another nominee, you have the potential for eight years in the White House versus four and then another huge battle for the presidency again. Absolutely. Kimberly Strassel, the book is The Biden Malaise. It's available everywhere. And I appreciate you so much giving us your time today. Oh, Martha, thank you so much for having me. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. One of the tools where people are getting back to talking to each other is through the AND campaign. And Justin Gibney and I have gotten to know each other over the last few months, and he is the founder of the AND campaign. And uh, we wanted to have him back on to just talk about some of the crazy things that are going on in politics right now, uh, but also to just kind of get an update on what's happening with him. Justin, how are you? Hey, Martha. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So just give us a quick update on what you're working on in the AND campaign. Yeah, so the AND campaign, as, as folks know, is a Christian civic organization. One of the things we're doing now is we have a cohort in our Christian Civic Leadership Academy, where it's uh, nonpartisan and we're teaching Christians uh, from, you know, the theology of why we should get engaged to um, 
what it is, you know, what a campaign manager does and what the anatomy of a campaign is. So we want to give Christians, uh, make them better equipped to engage politics uh, and more informed. And um, you were, you really kind of came out of politics, right, to do this, just to remind people what your background is. Yeah, that's right. I worked for the mayor of Atlanta for eight years and also ran campaigns in the city of Atlanta for over a decade. And you were a Democratic um, uh, National Committee man, right? Well, yeah. Well, I was a, uh, on two occasions, I was a delegate at the Democratic National Convention. Right. Great. Yes, absolutely. So I appreciate you. I appreciate that. And, and I appreciate what you're saying about Christian values and getting Christians to engage. You know, I think that's important. I think too many times we're told that somehow our values are out of step. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's not true. Yeah, I would agree. Sometimes we don't engage, and then sometimes we engage, too, uh, I think, in a two-partisan or ideological manner, and and those are some of the things that we're trying to correct as well. So I wanted to get your thoughts on a couple of things. Uh, First of all, we got these primary debates that are coming up. Um, Well, on the Republican side, we've got one on August 23rd. They've got this qualifying because there's so many candidates. Right now, it looks like the front-runner, former President Trump's not going to be at the debate, but my sense is he's not going to be able to stand for the limelight to be somewhere else and he might end up coming who knows but we're going to have some sort of a debate structure on the republican side on the democratic side last i heard they're not going to do debates what do you think about that whole process well i believe on on both sides the american people need to hear from all the candidates and so i hope you're right uh, uh, about um, former president trump i hope he comes in there and lets the people hear what he has to say and the same thing goes for President Biden. Um, you need to stand before the people and, and make your case. It's not a given that you're there. And I think when we do it this way, we give the, the parties a little bit too much control. And we need to make sure that the people are, are hearing everybody out and getting a chance to, to weigh what they're saying. So how does I know on the Democratic side, they have this thing called superdelegates uh, that are a little different than the actual delegates from each individual state. How does that process work? Because I think a lot of people are not familiar with that. Yeah, so when it comes to the superdelegates um, on the Democratic side, they they do have some power that you may not see on the Republican side. I think that may be a little a little bit over overstated sometimes when when we're talking about the right, but they, but they can come in and kind of weigh in on who the candidates are, and their vote is weighted differently than your average delegate, uh, and so that that can have a impact on. Who, who wins the primary. And I think we saw that when it came to what happened to Bernie Sanders and, and Hillary Clinton. You had superdelegates that came in and weighed in and really, I think, in an unfair way, kind of pushed them to the side and put them at a disadvantage. So, yeah, it's always interesting to watch because I usually attend both conventions on a press basis, and it's always interesting to watch that kind of uh, uh kind of maneuvering that goes on 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 both sides but there is that extra component of the superdelegate on the democrat side so um also this week we had several instances of um issues around the age of some of the people we have in office and uh you had an incident with uh president biden and a high up person from the israeli government where um, he kind of put his head on his chest and he was talking while he was doing it, but nobody could understand what he was saying. And then he brought his head back up and said the last few words. And then, of course, you had the famous now McConnell freeze that happened a few days ago 
where he just stopped talking for 18 seconds and then the press conference was over. So there's a lot of people that are in that 75 to 90 range in the Congress right now. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I feel like if you can do your job, um, then you should be able to do your job. I don't, I don't know that we should say, say any age restraints, but it's clear to me that we have some people in very important positions. You mentioned uh, McConnell, Biden, Feinstein is another one who it doesn't seem like they are have the capacity to do what they need to do. And I think that's unfortunate for the American people because it's not only about being in that position, it's, it's having the energy and the ability to have the conversations and to move and, and do things with policy that move us forward and that help us come to solutions. There's a culture, there's apparently a, a culture within Congress and just within, I guess, politics in general, especially on the national level, where people just don't want to let go and that scene is okay, even when it gets to the point where it seems like it's uh, impacting their ability to do their jobs. Yeah, I mean, again, there is always the exception that proves the rule. Like if, if I don't know if you've ever met Senator Inhofe from, from Oklahoma, he's, he's in his late 80s and he still flies an airplane and he is just sharp as he can be. And, um, you know, I have, he lost his son in the Iraq war and I, I kind of have this theory that God's given him a little more time to make up for that. <laughs> you know, I don't know uh, gotcha. because I've I've known him through that that whole ordeal, and he is just as sharp as he can be. But you know, just because there's an exception that proves the rule doesn't mean we ought to not look at these other folks. No, that's true, and and the voters have to take that in consideration. And I think at the end of the day, that's where it lies. But uh, the folks who are in office and the people around them need to be respectful of the people and say, hey, if you're incapacitated and can't do your job, then it's time to step down. So one final thing I wanted to ask you about, Justin, and is that uh, there's been a lot of talk this week about the Florida curriculum around um, uh, African-American history. And um, it's been kind of histrionic, really, as far as and, and again, I'm a member of the State Board of Education for Georgia. And I know there's a there's a process that goes involved with any of these kind of standards and standards are not curriculum. It's just guidelines that you follow. But I talked to Michael Thurman earlier in the week about it and got his opinion. But I wanted to know kind of what your thoughts were about the Florida curriculum. Yeah, I would want to put these things into historical context. So there has been a lot of bad faith in this country when it comes to black history curriculum and standards. And so when people look at these things, they're going to do so with a high level of scrutiny, or you could almost say strict scrutiny. There's not going to be a lot of benefit of doubt just because how this has played out. And I think Governor DeSantis, to some extent, has used this curriculum as kind of a political football. I mean, he's gone national and, and had these conversations about it. And I think because of how he used it, whether whether or not he created the standards or not, that's kind of where the scrutiny comes from. That said, um, and, I, and I think there were certainly mistakes and, and bad language used in that those standards. In any, any way that you, you can find that, like a silver lining, as has been said, when it comes to slavery, it just shouldn't have been there. And it should be taken out. And I think it deserves scrutiny. However, the way that some partisans uh, and some parts of the media have used, exploited this issue, I think, is unnecessary. So what happens is we go into this two-week outrage cycle where I think bigger issues need to be paid attention to. Not that this is small, but there's other national issues that uh, are taking out of the headlines because we're so focused on these issues that pop up 
you know, once a month or, you know, yeah. every now and then. Well, it's funny because I read through the whole thing and I agree with you. There was some bad language used um, in, in, I like the way you put it, the silver lining around slavery because there's not a silver lining. There wasn't a silver lining for, you know, the Hebrews that were slaves to the Egyptians. There's not a silver lining anywhere that there's slavery. There's not not that but i thought one thing that i didn't know about that i'm going to dig into was that when this country started we did not originally have a slave system it was more of a serfdom kind of system was kind of an old middle middle ages kind of thing and there was some shift that was made from that kind of indentured servitude to slavery and i had never seen that concept before and i you know, one of the things I like to do when I see things like that is I'm going to dig into that because I want to understand more about that because it was certainly something that I was never taught. Yeah, I, I've seen that before, and I, I think it needs to be taught. People need to know that. Unfortunately, what I, what we do sometimes is we bring up systems like that and even systems in other countries and who was involved to kind of not candy coat but, but underplay how bad uh, – slavery was here in America. And I think we can talk about those things if we do so without throwing in factors here and there that might make slavery in America seem less than what it was. And and, and so that's just what we have to watch out for and understand the history behind it. Well, and I I do always look at um, the Depression era as being this era that busted everybody. You know, we we got up to the Depression and basically, you know, I I like to look at things through a lens of God. And I think God said bust everybody. (laughs) It was like everybody had to start over again after the Depression. That doesn't solve any of the problems we had leading up to it. But I think we're in a, I, you know, obviously we've talked about this before, Justin. I think me as a white woman probably think we've gone farther. You as a black man might think we Mm -hmm. haven't gone quite as far. And somewhere in the Mm -hmm. middle might be the truth and may not even be right in the middle. But there's there's different perspectives for different people. And, you know, we got to sit down and talk to each other because if we don't talk to each other and if we can't have the conversation, we're never going to learn. We have to have those conversations. Uh, you know, the point you make about the uh, Great Depression, everybody would. I mean, there are a lot of suffering among everybody. What I would point to, though, is how people were allowed to recover. When yes. you look at things like the GI Bill, there's certain people who were kept from recovering in the, in the same way that others were allowed to. So that, that's something to take into consideration. Well, and you can't downplay the role that World War II played in moving along the civil rights movement. I mean, there's so much to look at. Uh, related to all of that. So, Justin Gibney, give folks your website one more time. Sure. It is andcampaign.org. That's andcampaign.org. And this is what I love to getting together with Justin is there's always so much more to talk about. Thank you so much for being with us today. Always. Thank you, Martha. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.